We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 11 and read down to verse 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It was C.S. Lewis who, in his now beloved book, Mere Christianity, made this profound statement about the Christian earthly mindedness and heavenly mindedness. He said, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Let me read that last part again. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Now, that's a profound statement because what Peter is telling his uh, readers all through this letter is that we are to be so heavenly minded that we are of earthly good. Peter has told them that they are living as Christians in a fallen world. It's a world that's very different than the world they wish it was. It's not the world that they wish it was. And Peter is telling them that while they may have an idea of what it would look like to live in a world that they wish it could be, they are to live as Christians here and now in the world that is. It's actually one of the most important books in the New Testament for us as we watch the culture around us rapidly becoming like the culture in which these Christians lived. Because what Simon Peter is telling these Christians is that Christianity works in every society, under every government. It is possible to be a Christian in the world in which you live here and now and not in the world that you want it to be. And I think we need to hear that more than anything. I think of the conversations that happen through the week. I think of the conversations I have with people and how people bemoan the world and how terrible things are getting and how much things are changing and how awful things are getting and how the Christian church may possibly be, be exiled from culture and exiled from this country that was built at one time on Christian principles. And I see, I see a danger in people. I see a danger in many Christians that think I could live the Christian life if the culture in which I lived was a culture that was conducive to the way I think Christian life ought to be lived. 
And Peter is again and again and again reminding his listeners that Christianity works in every culture, under every regime, and can take place everywhere, and that we need to come to grips with the fact that the way Christianity works in a culture that we don't want it to work in is by us living as heavenly-minded citizens knowing that we don't belong to the world in which we live. And the moment we start to think that the culture around us deserves to treat us some way, they should give us something, they should respect us more, they should treat us better, and they should, they should protect our freedoms and our rights. The moment we start to do that is the moment we have shifted gears to think that somehow this is our home. This is our permanent dwelling place. We want the comforts. We want the, we want the protection and the safety. And I want to say this as clearly and reverently as I can tonight. God has never promised us the comforts or the protections in this world, in this present world, but he has left us in this world to be lights in a dark place. Notice what Peter says after telling them that they are to live as sojourners and exiles. Notice what he says. Keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so God has left us here to be lights both in word and in deed. He's left us here to do what C.S. Lewis said, that it was mostly Christians who have changed the world. It was the apostles that turned the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel. It was the Middle Ages that were brought along through great Christian men who had great gifts and who used them for the glory of God. And it was evangelicals that abolished the slave trade. It was Christians that started most of the hospitals. It had been Christians that have done the world the most good, and yet it's Christians that have always been most despised and were to expect that we're to be despised. And we're to expect that we're to be hated. And we are, every day of our life, to say, this world that God has left me in is not the world that I wish it was. It's the world that God has left me to be a Christian in as it is and to make a difference and to do good and to be a blessing and to be respectful and to be submissive even to governments that hate and despise us and speak evil of us. Now we want to see three things tonight. First, as Peter continues to tell the believers to whom he's writing about the enormous privileges that they have as being a chosen race and a a royal priesthood and a holy nation, he tells them now, first, that they are to remember who they are in Christ. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Secondly, he tells them that we are to be a blessing in a hostile world. There in verse 15, as we've already read. And then finally, he says that we are to seek to live as freed men and women. Notice that he says in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cloak, for evil. Now, as he begins to tell them that we are to remember who we are in Christ, as I've noted already, Peter has used this idea of being pilgrims and sojourners. As I was driving here tonight and I was meditating on this passage and I was looking around Richmond Hill, and this is very much my home and my family is established here. This is where God has put me. There are things here. There are comforts here. There are great privileges in living in a place like we live. And yet as I was driving, I was thinking, is the conscious thought of my life, is the driving thought of my life, I am not a citizen of this place. I am a pilgrim. I am sojourning here. I am passing through. And I think what Peter is doing by reiterating this idea that we are sojourners and that we are merely passing through and that this is not our home, as he said in verse 1, that we are exiles. And then again, I believe in verse 17, 
He says that you conduct yourself throughout the time of your exile here, your pilgrimage here. And then again in 2.9, notice you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He had called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And now he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, there is a fascinating theme in Scripture as you read through the Scriptures. It's one of the most prevalent themes, and that is the theme that believers are sojourners. Every generation, Old and New Testament, God is constantly reminding his people that this is not your home. Paul will bring this to that glorious climax in Philippians when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus who will transform this lowly body to be conformed to his glorious body. Uh, One of my friends did a study of uh, how much of the New Testament spoke of the expectation of Christ's return, not in some sort of Uh, not in some sort of current event eschatology, getting the newspaper out with the Bible, but just talking about the coming of Christ and the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus and and the glorification of the saints. And he had concluded that more than one third of the New Testament, and I think it may be more than that, more than one third of the New Testament speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And in connection with that coming, in almost every case, the correlation is Christ is coming, be watching, be waiting, live holy lives. And the implication for expecting the coming of Jesus was not to sit around and try to figure out like some Rubik's Cube, the biblical teaching on the second coming, and calculate times and seasons and dates, but it was to live holy lives. And notice what Peter does as he brings this back up in verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, here's the interesting thing. He doesn't say abstain from the passions of the flesh and so become sojourners and exiles. That would be to put the cart before the horse. He says, remember what you are. You know, so much of the Christian life and so many failures. Let me say this this way. So many failures in our lives come from us forgetting what we are in Christ. Probably most of the failings in our lives come from us forgetting that God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love, that he's raised us up with Christ, that he's given us the adoption as sons. When you think of God, do you think of him as your father? Do you think he has adopted me into his family through Jesus Christ? When you think of God and his holiness and majesty, do you think that in that holiness, he devised a plan to redeem you? When you think of God, do you think he has loved me with a special love and with an everlasting love? And he has poured out his everlasting kindness on me. And he has said, I will love you. I will love you with an everlasting love. You are mine. When you think of yourself, do you think... I am in union with Jesus. And here's the marvelous thing. Jesus was the greatest sojourner and pilgrim this world has ever known. If anyone could say this was not his home, it was Jesus Christ. He left the glories of heaven. He who was rich, Paul will say, became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. He gave up everything. The king of glory and the king of heaven came to a world that had rebelled against him, that had in every way turned its back on him, a world who would soon cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And he gave up everything 
and he became homeless, and he became weak, and he became himself a, a slave in the human court of unrighteousness, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And the marvelous thing is that he was the greatest exile this world has ever known. And now, as he has drawn us out of this fallen in this dark world, he has made us pilgrims and exiles. You know, this is the strength of the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Probably not a week goes by that I don't think about that opening illustration in The Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is reading the Bible and he realizes that the judgment of God is coming on this fallen world. And he realizes that the city he lives in is the city of destruction. And he realizes that if, if he remains in that city, and if he stays in the state in which he was, he would perish with everyone else there. He realizes at that moment, and that's the beauty of it, the very beginning of the Christian life is realizing that we are to be pilgrims, and sojourners through this fallen world to the celestial city because Jesus has redeemed us. And I love when his friends are trying to stop him and Christian plugs his ears and he runs and he cries out life, life, eternal life. And that is the experience of every Christian that has been redeemed from this fallen, present, evil age and has been raised up in Jesus is that they see this world and they see all the emptiness of it and they know that judgment's coming and they know that Christ has redeemed them and they are happy to be journeying to Zion. They are happy. They are longing to be set free from the bodies of sin and corruption. And so Peter would have them know, remember what you are. You are sojourners. You are pilgrims. You are exiles here. And notice that in relation to that and in relation to the hope of Christ coming again, he says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Let me say this this evening. There is no way for us to make light of sin, to trifle with sin, to take sin to our souls and it not impact us and not war against us. I wonder actually if... Uh, Peter doesn't have in mind the Old Testament picture of Israel where God had told them to go into Canaan. They were sojourners, just like Abraham had been a sojourner in the promised land. And, and God tells them to go in, and as they go in to take possession, God tells them to destroy all of the wicked nations around them. That was God's judgment on those nations for their abominations. And God was purging that temple of the Holy Land. He was making a dwelling place for himself with his people. They were to be holy. The land was to be holy. He tells them to go in and not to leave any and to thoroughly cleanse the temple. And Israel goes in and they do a shoddy job. And they leave lots of the inhabitants. And God says, they will become thorns in your side. They will become thorns in your side. And the history of Israel in the land is a history of them leaving those people that God told them to destroy. And they became thorns in their side. And I wonder if Peter doesn't have that in mind as he makes that spiritual application to us as the new covenant Israel. And he says, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against the soul, they are the thorns. They become the thorns in the flesh. The sins that we've been redeemed out of that we go back to again. You know, the Bible gives the most descriptive imagery about going back to sin. And one I've thought about recently a lot, Peter will pick up on this in Second Peter, is uh, the Proverbs say, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. I just got a dog. I now experientially 
understand that proverb better. <laughs> That's in the Bible. So disgusting though that, and our sin is disgusting, and it wars against the soul. And God used the most descriptive language he could to explain what our sin is like. And so as we remember that we're sojourners, and we remember that this is not our home, that what should happen then is I should want to rid myself of my sin. Interesting. Peter doesn't say, as pilgrims and sojourners, go around and tell everybody else how awful they are. As pilgrims and sojourners, go out and complain about how unhappy you are about the government and how dissatisfied you are with society. He doesn't say, as pilgrims and sojourners, go out and demand that everybody changes to do what you want them to do. He says, as pilgrims and sojourners, abstain from fleshly lust that war against the soul. And so Peter would have us, first of all, remember who we are in Christ. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased. We've been set on our journey to glory. It is only those who are most heavenly minded who will be of most earthly use. It's because Christians have largely ceased. Remember this from Lewis. It is because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have been so become so effectual in this one. You know, I would challenge us this week ahead to meditate on heaven, to meditate on where we're going, meditate on your destination, meditate on your journey through this world, meditate on what our life reflects as we go through this world, meditate on how much we're desiring Christ or how much we're desiring the things of the world. Peter is constantly trying to raise a downcast people and a persecuted people's hope off of this world. You know, I sometimes, I don't want suffering. I don't like when people say, you know, we want God to send suffering because then people will trust him more. But there's a purpose in suffering. God sends the suffering to remind us that this is not our home. He sends the difficulties and the trials to remind us. And so we must remember who we are in Christ. Secondly, we must seek to be a blessing in a hostile world. Notice what he then says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, it's fascinating. One theologian actually makes the point that um, psychologists and uh, psychiatrists have noted that in our society, as was true most likely in this society, that one of the rarest things in the world is respect. One of the rarest things in the world is respect. One of the rarest things in the world is honoring other people. Notice what Peter says. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God in the day of visitation. And notice that he says in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. When people see Christians, what they should see is not a complaining and discontent people who are unhappy about what's going on. And I am guilty of that. They should not see that. They should see a people who have that rare jewel of honor and respect, even of people they disagree with. I've told you in the past, John Calvin, in the preface to one of his commentaries, wrote the King of France. And the King of France was threatening to eradicate all the Protestants. And Calvin essentially says, let us live and we will do you good. Let us live and we will do you good. Our mindset as Christians in this world should be, let us live 
and we will do you good. Not let us live and we will demand that you do what we think is good. It's a radical paradigm shift. Another commentator makes the point that there's no other religion in the world that teaches what Peter teaches here. There's no other religion in the world that says, when everyone hurts you, when everyone's against you, when everyone is persecuting you, bless them, honor them, pray for them, do them good. Let them see your good works, not your loud mouth. My, how we need to learn that. Let them see your good works, not your loud mouth. Let them see you blessing others and helping others and caring for others and seeking to do good to others. Look, Peter is telling us, in short, we must seek to be a blessing to a hostile world. That's why we're here. And you know what? There's a witness to that. I actually think that what Peter is telling us, and this is powerful, is that the greatest evangelistic tool in Jesus's belt, besides the preaching of the gospel, is the lives of the saints. It's the greatest evangelistic tool. People should meet us and they should say, I've never met anybody like this person. I don't know anyone like this person. Yes, they tell me that, that I'm going to perish. And yes, they tell me that they would perish. Yes, they tell me that the whole world is under the wrath of God. But they tell me that there's a Savior and a Redeemer. And they do good to me and they, they care for me. And they're not self-righteous toward me. There's always that fine line. I want to make this point tonight. I think that there is a very fine line in being faithful to proclaim the word of God and being unfaithful and being judgmental toward those that we know are going to be judged by God. A very fine line. And you know what? A lot of times I think we cross that line and we linger in that line. I catch myself. I caught myself lingering across the wrong side of that line last week. I was with someone in the church and we were out and we had a waitress who was sort of rude and hostile and I was sitting there and I was complaining about her and I was judging her and the person I was with said to her how are you doing and it was like somebody hit me with a bag of bricks I had crossed the line I'd crossed the line Peter tells us that we should be so far on the other side of the line that when unbelievers speak about us as evildoers they see our good works They see our kindness, they see our respect, they see our honor, they see our love, they see our care, they see our tenderness. Let me say this tonight too. Don't think that you are going to promote sin by being kind and respectful to unbelievers. You are not going to enable sin by being honorable and respectful to unbelievers. I think we chalk that up. Well, if we don't tell them everything they're doing wrong and take a stand against the culture wars, we're not being faithful. Peter never tells them to take a stand in the culture wars. He says, honor, respect, do good, be upright, flee from sin, pursue holiness, do what's honorable before the Gentiles so that they cannot speak evil of you in the day of visitation. And notice, it is a powerful evangelistic tool. Notice what he says. He says in verse 12, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God's glory is shown forth when his people are like God. This morning I was driving here. It was so beautiful out. And I just thanked the Lord. I said, Lord, thank you that you make your sun shine on the ungodly and the godly. And you send rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus said, be merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. We should be the most zealous. Even as we pilgrimage through this world, we should be the most zealous to do good 
and to serve others and to be a blessing in a hostile world. And then finally, we must seek to live as free men and women. Notice that Peter will actually apply where the doing good takes place in this context because of the persecution. It had to do directly with the government, be subject for the Lord's sake to every governing authority, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But then notice verse 16, live as people who are free. So even as we subject ourselves to governing authorities, even as we subject ourselves to to human institutions. We've heard about this in our time in the book of Romans. Even as we live as good citizens and we pay our taxes and we seek to do good and seek to be a blessing and respect and honor authorities that God has put in place, even if they're not Christian authorities, even as we are subject to them, notice what Peter says, live as those who are free. There's almost a, there's almost a contradiction. Subject yourself to human authorities. Live as those who are free. Notice what he does then. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so back behind all of our activities in this world and what lay behind our are trying to live honorably and respectfully and living a life of holiness and a life of good works in this fallen world as we pilgrimage through it. Behind that is the fact that we've been set free by Christ. We've been set free to live for God. We've been set free from the condemnation of sin. We've been set free from the power of Satan. We've been set free from the corruption of sin. We've been set free from every conscience-binding law of man that would seek to go against the law of God. We are free to serve God. We are not free to please ourselves. Notice that Peter gives that caveat. There's always a danger when we know our freedom as Christians. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And what does that look like? What does it look like to live as people who are free? I think he logically connects it to that last verse. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. What does it look like when, when a man or a woman knows that they've been set free by Christ. They know that they're free. They know that they're free from condemnation. They know that they're bound for glory. They know that the everlasting inheritance is theirs. They know that God is keeping them through faith in Jesus Christ for that inheritance that will not fade, reserved in heaven. What does it look like when a man or a woman actually comes to a point where they know that they're free? It looks like this. They will seek to honor all people. They will love the brotherhood. They will fear God, and they will honor the king. That's what, that's what spiritual freedom looks like in the lives of God people. They will honor everyone. You know, I sometimes think in that phrase, honor everyone, we really want to take a whole lot of people out of that phrase. We want to just chop that phrase into like a fifth. Just get rid of like four-fifths of that phrase, as if everyone was just the portion of people we could actually honor. It means honoring our president. It means honoring our president. It does. I'm going to say that as emphatically as I can tonight. We're all very conservative here, I'm sure. We are to honor our president. We are to honor local officials. We are to honor any leaders God has put in place. We are to honor 
everyone. We are to honor the person in the workplace that we don't like who is mean to us. We are to honor the waitress who is rude and bitter towards you. We are to honor our neighbors who won't talk to us. We are to honor everyone. We are to honor bosses who are heavy-handed. We are to honor people who work under us who don't work as diligently as we think they should work. Whatever sphere of relationship we are with people, we are to honor them. And let me say this, free people love the brotherhood. I, um, I actually think that Peter, and I'll close with this thought, I think that Peter grew, I think he grew in his knowledge of the freedom that he had in Christ. You know, when you look at Peter's life in the Gospels, it's really a lot about Peter. Peter's about Peter. He's racing John to the tomb. He's got to try to beat John to the tomb. Peter's about Peter. Peter is, I'll do this. You'll never do this, Lord. I'll go here. I'm ready to die with you. Peter is about Peter. And you remember where Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you, for all of you, um, to sift you as wheat. And then Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. Jesus' goal in Peter's life was to make him know the redeeming mercy and grace and freedom that he had, and that that freedom would result in Peter pouring his life out in love for the brethren. And here's how I know that Peter learned it. You know how I know that Peter learned it? Because Peter wrote this letter, and Peter wrote 2 Peter, and everything that he says in it shows that Peter was a man that grew in the knowledge of the freedom that he had in Jesus. He knew he was a sojourner. He knew he was to be a blessing in a hostile world, and he learned to know that he was to live as a free man in this world, honoring all people and loving the brotherhood. I want to say this tonight, too, as we close. If you think there are things I've said you haven't liked, about how we're to honor governments we don't agree with. Um, None of us have suffered at the hands of governments the way Peter did. I would just encourage you to read the first eight chapters of the book of Acts and tell me how a man that endured all of that persecution wrongfully could then turn around and write what he wrote here and not mean that very thing. It's a profound point. If anyone should not have written this, it was Simon Peter. And the fact that he wrote it shows that it has God's fingerprints all over it and that Peter learned the very things that he's telling us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us a people who know who we are, that you would make us a people who know that we are pilgrims and that you would really and truly make us heavenly minded, that you would make us long to be with you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would encourage us in our pilgrimage this evening. We pray that you would also strengthen us in the knowledge that it's your will, that we be a blessing to a world that hates us and despises us, and that we are to continue to pursue what is good and to do good works to your glory and honor. We pray also, our Father, that you would make us a people that know we are free in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us to live as free men and as servants of God. Our God, we pray that you would stir up within us all that you want us to know this evening and that you would work in us for your glory and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.